0: Lord, every time we think about the cross and Calvary, it comes with mixed emotions. It's uh, on one side very difficult for us to comprehend because we we can only read about what crucifixion was like and what flogging was like, and we've seen movies attempt to demonstrate those things, but we don't actually really know, Lord, unless we were there. And you know exactly what it was like because you experienced everything. And so it, we come with like tremendously thankful hearts, but also like ones that cry out, cry out with you in excruciation over the the thought of it. And so we we have to just remember again, with grateful hearts that you did this in love for us. And so we think of the agony of that. And then again, like we think of the the mercy and how much you love as Lord. And so for that, we are externally and gratefully. Um, just in awe of what you did for us. So again, we just want to give you thanks Lord for your, your mercy and your love and your, your concern and care for us as humans. And there's tons of lost people in the world. And we think specifically in Okotoks that don't know your saving grace. who are walking around with sin attached to their backs and think nothing of it. I pray that you help our church to be a light in this community and that, uh, Each individual in here takes that responsibility upon their own shoulders to honor you with the way they live and look for open doors to share their faith. They want this building to be full, Lord, of people that have come to know you. And so, yeah, we look forward to anticipation of how you're going to use us in the weeks and months and years to come. In Jesus' name. All right, announcements are pretty straightforward. Uh, Monday night, girls. Uh, What's the plan? Send Send out a text for location. Okay. And uh, I can send out a text to the men about maybe getting together this week. And then as far as church goes next week, I will send out a formalized text with telling you what the alternatives are for next week. So I've got some ideas and I'll send those to you. Uh, But it's a long weekend and the majority of us are gone for one more vacation. So... Yeah, just keep, like like I said, I'll keep you up to date on what's going to happen there. Other, yeah, anyone who's not officially staying there can join us for a day. Yeah, thanks, Evie. Yeah. Uh, Anything else that we need to know about from the congregation that I'm unaware of? No? Okay. We will be announcing in the next couple of weeks some um, some changes we're going to be making to the vision of the church in terms of uh, the ministries that are happening here. And so we're just finalizing those things. And so there'll be opportunities to serve in different ways that haven't been there before. And so we just look forward to announcing those things to you. But we want to give you concrete details so that there's not a lot of questions surrounding what's going to happen. So we're just ironing ironing those things out as leadership. And uh, like I said, next couple of weeks, we'll have some announcements for you. So looking forward to the the future. Alrighty, let's turn to Joshua. Joshua chapter 2 and verse 1. Hey, before i get into this kevin do you know if it's how it would tell me if it's recording or not normally it makes an announcement to me that says it's recording oh it does okay i just can't see because that, that little red button just says stop share like the square yeah Okay. Okay, good enough. Actually, before we get going, I forgot one thing, important thing. We always introduce new people. (laughs) We always introduce new guests. And so not to put anybody in the spot, (laughs) but it is our custom. So Tony, you want to introduce your friend to us? Okay. Okay, good. Great. Well, welcome, Dale. Yeah, nice to have you. So, okay, let's stand and read Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men, a spy, secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came into the house of a harlot, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Well, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hidden them in the stalks of the flax, which she had laid in order, laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the forts. And as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when we came out of Egypt, or when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you, the lord your god he is god in heaven above and on earth beneath now therefore please swear to me by the lord since i have dealt kindly with you that you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a pledge of truth and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death so the men said to her our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Well, then she let them down by a rope through the window for her house was open on the city wall so that she was living on the wall. She said to them, go to the hill country so that the pursuers will not happen upon you and hide yourselves there for for three days until the pursuers return. Then afterward, you may go on your way. The men said to her, we shall be free from this oath to you, which you have made us swear, unless when we come into the land, you tie this cord of scarlet thread into the window, through which you let us down and gather to yourself into the house, your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's house hold. It shall come about that anyone who goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be free. But anyone anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on your head, if a hand is laid on him. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be free from the oath which you have made us swear. She said, according to your words, so may be it, so be it. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and came to the hill country, and remained there for three days until the pursuers returned. Now the pursuers, had sought them all along the road, but had not found them. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they related to him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given us all the land into our hands. Moreover, all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before us. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, today, we're doing what we did two weeks ago, and that is a character study on a particular individual in the Bible. Two weeks ago, we did the life of Barnabas, and today, we're doing the life of Rahab. Very fitting on the day of communion in regards to the Lord extending, extending mercy to someone. Now, I know that many of you in here are familiar with her story and know it well, but there may be some of you here on Zoom that aren't as familiar. So let me give you a Coles Notes version of the entire story that we just read. After 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, it's now time to enter the promised land for Israel. Moses has died, and Joshua is a new leader. And we learned in the beginning of chapter 2 that they were camped at Shittim. Now I'll show you this on the map. If you look at the bottom right, you'll see the plains of Moab, and I've drawn an arrow on the map. And it says their starting point, Shittim. So they're on the east side of the Jordan River, which is flowing directly from the Dead Sea to the Sea of Galilee. So they're on the right side. They're about to cross into the land of Canaan, which is where all the red arrows are going. That's the whole land of Canaan, all the way from Lebanon to Egypt on the Mediterranean Sea. So in order to bring conquest to the land and take it over, they have to cross the Jordan. And the first city they're going to encounter is Jericho. You can see it just above the Dead Sea on the on the left hand uh sort of top left hand side so the first city is Jericho and so they send two spies into Jericho to survey the land and to bring back report of what it's like basically to see what their obstacles are when they go into it when they get to Jericho they find uh they find lodging in a prostitute's house named Rahab now it turns out these spies aren't very good ones (laughs) because they were spotted and the king found out that they had been coming. And so the whole city knows that the spies are there. So they send the, the king sends his right-hand men to Rahab's house to find them, to apprehend them. And, of course, they can't find them because she's hidden them on the flax uh, uh, on top of the roof that has been taken in probably from harvest. So with this going on now, she's hid them. They can't find them. And Rahab sends the spies on a wild goose chase. She tells them that they've headed towards the Jordan River when, in fact, they went into the hills of Jericho. And so she makes a pact with these guys that basically, if she protects them, that uh, when God takes the land over and takes the city over, that her life and her family will be spared. And the city's fall was remarkable. You know the story. It's uh, instead of going hand-to-hand in combat initially, uh, what God has them do is march around the city once a day for six days, On the seventh day, they marched around the city seven times, and then they blow the trumpets, and then everyone gave a shout, and the walls came tumbling down. And then they went in and did hand-to-hand combat with the remaining people who lived. But the key of the story was God was faithful to his promise to Rahab, and Rahab was spared and taken out with her family out of Jericho. So that's the story in a nutshell. But we want to look specifically at the life of Rahab, because within this story, we see really important things for us to learn as examples of what it is to become a Christian and what it is to live a model of faith in response to the Lord. So we don't have a lot of details about her life in the beginning, but we have enough to gain important information that we don't want to miss. So the first one we know for sure is that she had a family. Rahab had a family, and the family was still alive. You notice in verse uh, 12 and 13, when she goes to make a pact with the Israelite spies, she wants them to deal kindly with her father's household. And in verse 13, it says, would you spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver us from this life of death. So clearly, Rahab's family is still alive. And there's quite a bountiful family. They seem to have a lot of people there. And uh, extends to probably her nieces and nephews because her brothers and sisters obviously have children, by the way this is written. Now, we don't know the family's relationship to her and how they treated her, but we can see that clearly Rahab had a care for her family and a concern for her family. The fact that she wanted to include them in God sparing them from the judgment shows you that she had a heart for her family. Another major observation is that she's from the city of Jericho. In verse 1, as you can see on the, on the, on the map here, this, that's the first city Israel has to encounter to gain Canaan. But we know Jericho from the Bible is a wealthy city, a wealthy city, both an agricultural, agriculture and material wealth and goods. Uh, even though it was near the Dead Sea, agriculturally, it was in a fertile plain. And in the Old Testament, it's actually referred to the city of Palms. Deuteronomy 34.3 says Jericho was the city of palms for its abundance of palm trees. And in Joshua 5.6, it's referred to the area of the land flowing with milk and honey. So again, that's not just, that's, you know, that's a way of describing the rich fertility that the Israelites were going to have when they took the land. But we also know they're wealthy beyond agriculture into material goods as well, especially precious metals. When Joshua was told in in chapter 6, in verse 19, to plunder the city, he says, you take the gold, take the silver, take the articles of bronze and iron. So again, they're going to encounter a ton of precious metals, but he made it clear, don't take them for yourself. You're going to take those and dedicate them to the treasury of God. But even though they had fancy and nice clothing uh, later on in chapter 7 when Achan sins and, and actually doesn't obey God and does take some of the plunder for himself, he comes, a, uh, comes across a piece of fine embroidered clothing that he is en- enamored by, and it's just beautifully done. And so we, we see again, like wealth within the city. But Jericho was also known for its military uh, uh, form- formid- formidability, <laughs> whatever that, how would you say it? Formidable presence, its uh, security. It's, uh, I thought I'd make up an English word for you today. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was impenetrable. It was a secure fortress, and it was because of its high walls and its, um, its uh, presence amongst the enemy nations. And so it was known that if you're going to go up against Jericho, you're not likely going to take it because you're going to have to encounter this huge fortress, this huge secure fortress. And we learn from chapter 2 in verse 15, Rahab's house was within the walls. So really remarkable, too, when you think that the walls are going to come tumbling down and Rahab's to be spared. It has to be supernatural, right? Because her house is within the walls, 2.15. But I think the most important thing to point out was that she was Canaanite. She was Canaanite. The Canaanites were descended from Noah. Noah had a son named Ham, and Ham had a son named Canaan. And the Canaanites came from, from Noah's descendants. But unfortunately, unlike Noah, the Canaanites weren't righteous people. In fact, the Old Testament tells us there's some really telling things about what the Canaanites were like. First of all, they were generally feared because of their great size and power. In Numbers 13, Moses had sent spies up to Canaan 40 years earlier and they came back with a report and says, we are not able to stand and go up against these people, for they are too strong for us. They're too strong for us. And they describe themselves as being like grasshoppers in their sight. So they were greatly feared due to their, their size and their power. But I think most importantly, from the Bible's perspective, is not to focus on their geography and to focus on their, their stature, but to focus on their character and their spiritual temperature. You see, in Deuteronomy 9, verse 5, they're described in this way. They're described as wicked people. And he reminds Israel here. He says, it's not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of the land. It's on account of the wickedness of these nations, the wickedness. So the question is, in what ways were they wicked? How are they wicked? Well, the Bible helps us again and defines it. First of all, they're wicked in their idolatry and the detestable acts that accompany their idolatry. In 1230 of Deuteronomy, he says, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods. Notice gods plural, as opposed to God of Israel singular. (laughs) Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things that the Lord hates. Now, here's the list, church. Here's the list. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices their sons or their daughters in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft, casts spells, who is a medium or spiritist, or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. These people were steeped in the occult and would even sacrifice their children's lives by burning them in fire as a way of honoring the Lord, their Lord, <laughs> their gods. It's just absolutely heinous when you think about that. I mean, I could, do a, I could spend 10 minutes picturing the scene of what that would be like. But it was beyond this, church. They, were, they went into their the their accompanying adult, idolatry was always the area of sexuality. And let's look at the, the, the uh, sexual sins of the Canaanite people. In Leviticus 18, it says this: Give the following instructions to the godly, pe- to the people of Israel. I am the Lord your God. So do not act like the people in Egypt, where you used to live, or like the people of Canaan, where I am taking you. You must not imitate their way of life. And I just summarize Leviticus 18. It's long, but here it is: You must never have sexual relationships with a close relative. And then he lists them: your mother. Your sister, your stepsister, your sister-in-law, your aunt, your granddaughter, your mother, and your daughter at the same time. And of course, it'd be flipped the other way to the woman in terms of uncle and brother and so on and so forth. Then he says, do not practice homosexuality. And he says, do not defy yourself by having sex with an animal. Listen, church. He says... (laughs) When you go into the land, do not act like the people of Canaan. This is what they're doing. This is what they're doing. Besides mass murder of their children and worshiping false gods. Now, the area of sexuality had obviously influenced Rahab. Because we learn in verse 1 that she was a prostitute. She was a harlot. This way of life had extended into her her as well. So what's the summary statement of the Canaanites? Well, we pick one up in, in Deuteronomy 7, 9 through 10. This is God's promise to Israel. He says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is faithful, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. But those who hate him He will repay to their face by destruction. He will not be slow to repay to their face those who hate him. The Canaanites hate God. You understand that? They hate God. Why do I bring this up so strongly? I want you to understand the influence and the background that Rahab has come from, so you understand the significance of the events that happened in this story. But more than that, I want to speak to the the apologetic side of Christianity. A lot of atheists out there argue that God's a tyrannical, egotistical killer, and they use the extermination of Canaan to prove their points. Listen, church, he's not taking out people randomly, playing whack-a-mole at the Callaway Park, just for fun, just because he can. These are people who have persisted in evil for centuries, since the days of Canaan, uh, Noah's grandson, And they've been shaking their fists defiantly at God their whole lives, and never come to repentance or bend a knee. God has patiently waited for centuries with this, and not one of them is turning to God. This is really important. We understand this. Okay, let's get into Rahab now. Now that you know her background, I want to suggest there's like five things we can learn from her life. Five things number one fear can be a legitimate catalyst to genuine faith fear can be a genuine catalyst to to genuine faith look at verse eight now before they laid down she came up to them on the roof and said to the men i know that the lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no longer courage remained in any of us any longer because of you. Rahab, in her thinking, she's looking back through history and she goes, 40 years ago, you took out the Red Sea. You took out Egypt, and Israel came to the Red Sea, where they were cornered. This should have been a major obstacle for God. But in the hands of God, it was nothing. He parted it, and the Israelites walked through, and they were saved. And the Egyptian army were completely and utterly destroyed. Why do I think that's important? What's standing before them right now, in terms of an obstacle? Another body of water. (laughs) What's separating God's people from Jericho? The Jordan River. East side, west side. If you can do the Red Sea and it's no match for God, the Jordan River means jack in terms of a defense. Not only this, they took out two Amorite kings this recently. These weren't sort of pipsqueak kings. These were formidable opponents who were incredibly powerful nations. And they were totally helpless under God's power. So if that was the case, what good were these walls of Jericho? What good were the walls when God could take out seas and take out two powerful kings? And so the result is that the, the entire city, Rahab and hers, or sorry, Rahab and theirs, lost all courage. It says that they were, the terror fell on them, and their hearts melted when they, when they saw what God did. And they, rec- they were melted because they recognized they were powerless to stop him they were a defeated people and so how did rahab respond in the midst of fear she turned to god and switched sides and put her faith in him you know i was thinking about this application wise this is a pretty important lesson you know there's many of us who've come to the lord because of his unfailing love and his, 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 his incredible forgiveness that he offers us some some of us have been carrying major guilt, and when we heard the gospel of the of the Lord, we we couldn't believe that we were loved that deeply, despite all of our sin. And so there was huge freedom in finding forgiveness. But you know what? Some of us come to the Lord out of fear, and that's legitimate too. That's Janice's story, and that's my story. Janice's story was she was she heard someone one day say, "If the Lord returned." In the second coming, would you be ready? And Janice went home and for weeks pondered that question and said, I didn't even know the Lord was returning. (laughs) I only knew about his first coming, not a second coming. And then she questioned for weeks. Oh, man, if he comes, am I ready? Am I ready? So her focus is not on God's love and mercy for her. It's am I ready to face God as judge? That's my story, too. When I started going to E-Free Church, it wasn't through this overwhelming love of God that I I received his mercy. I started to realize that God was a judge. There was a heaven and hell. And if I was to die in that moment, I'd be on the wrong side of God's judgment. It wasn't a very sort of romantic uh, story. But the reality is, I don't feel bad about it because that's Rahab. And so I just share this with you because maybe some of you can relate to Janice, can relate to Rahab, relate to me. But also, too, it might help you in the way you share your faith with others. And as you listen to their story, you know, maybe they're coming from that perspective, too. And that's good and okay in God's eyes. It's not a lesser of a faith to think that it's a legitimate way to respond to God. But just a side note here, even though fear can be a catalyst to salvation, fear in itself does not save you, nor does one knowledge of God. Just having the knowledge of God. You know, it's interesting, both Rahab and all the citizens feared him equally. They all had identical knowledge. Did you notice the plurality of what she was saying in verse 10? Listen to this. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. Right? And what you did to the two kings. And then in verse 11, when we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in us any longer. This is not just Rahab. The whole city city recognizes it. But only Rahab does something with that knowledge. Only Rahab is delivered. So the question is why? (laughs) Well, we're going to get to that a little bit in a second. But just at first, we don't exactly know why some people turn to God and some people don't. All I can say is this. Pride is a powerful powerful thing It's surprising to me in life how much a person must suffer and come to the just like deal with so much hurt and turmoil before they we can even consider god we have an incredible uh, fortitude to persevere in the midst of suffering and it's amazing how much uh, it takes before we come to the end of ourselves Sadly, for the people in Jericho, none of them did. Only Rahab did. Which leads us to the second lesson. Truth, faith is not simply measured by one's knowledge of God, but in how one chooses to live in relation to that knowledge of him. The difference between Rahab and the Jericho citizens was this she allowed her belief in the Lord to change the way she lived. Her knowledge of God changed the way her life looked. When the citizens refused to bend the knee and beg for God's mercy, she took immediate action, demonstrating where her newfound allegiance lied. In verse 1, when the spies came to Jericho, she hid them. In verse 2 through 4 and 15 through 16, when when they were found out, She did everything she could to protect them. And so Rahab's a model to us. Her faith was not simply about head knowledge of God. It was about actively trusting him. I'll say that again. It wasn't about her knowledge. It was active trust. It was faith that was modeled in the way she was living. This is really important because, you know, in James 2.19, it says this about the demons you he says this first of all to the church you believe that god is one good for you even the demons believe that and shudder you notice that so knowledge and fear didn't make jericho citizens believers in him listen to the 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 knowledge and fear in the demons they believe that god is one and they shudder with that reality demonic faith has knowledge of god demonic faith can fear god but that doesn't make one a follower of god so again, our knowledge of God in and of itself does not save us. It's the way we live for him. And true faith acts in service to the Lord. And so James picks up on this in the New Testament, right? A lot of people didn't like James in the early church, uh, in the sort of like the, some, through the centuries, because they thought that he was teaching salvation by works alone. But we know as New Testament Christians, that's not what he was saying. But just consider this verse for a second. He says, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not just by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. It's the same reason why Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The question for us, church, right now is, where are we at? Are we more like the citizen of Jericho? Or are we more like Rahab? In terms of our willing to line up our lives in accordance with the knowledge of God we have. The third lesson is this. There may be times when we have to be bold enough to stand up to governing authorities when they seek to circumvent God's plans. Look at 2, chapter 2, 2. He says, um, It was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house. For they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken two of the men and hidden them and said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they came from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark, that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up onto the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. The civil government came to act justice according to their law. Rahab said, not on your life. Life for me works on God's terms. <laughs> now, interesting, she lied to justify the means. Well, I'm not going to spend very little, I'm going to spend very little time on this because Roger just did a whole sermon about a month ago on, is it ever biblical to tell a lie? And, and the majority of the sermon was No. But he gave one condition and used passages to, to support it. And I suggest you listen to that sermon because I agree with everything he said in that message. But here's the point. in summary: the kind of lying that God hates is one that seeks to serve oneself, to promote one's self-interest, or to protect oneself, or to degrade another. But there are occasions when deception is ethically ethically permissible. It's when they oppose God's kingdom's purposes or violate his moral law. And that's exactly what was going on here. Now, as times change and get increasingly difficult for believers, there may be times we're going to have to exercise faith, like Rahab in this area. The fourth lesson we learned from here is that we need to show genuine concern for our family members, knowing that one day they will face God's judgment. In verse 12 and 13, read this with me. He says, Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a pledge of truth, and spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. It's hard for us to do this sometimes, church, because the ones that we love the most and are the most fearful to lose in relationship are our closest family members. But Rahab was willing to take the chance. She knew the outcome of her family if they didn't go God's way and and trust her with the pact that she made with the Israelite God and the spies. Without God's provision of mercy, she knew they were goners. And I would have loved for them to record the conversation in the Bible that happened those, in those next few hours with her and her family. I'd be really curious what that sounded like in that house as they went back and forth about what was going to happen and how she had come to believe in God's mercy and deliverance. So again, we teach at Genesis House, all the time, the pervasive character of God is what? He's love. For God is love. That is his pervasive character. Everything flows out of that. And so we do teach a lot about mercy and grace and forgiveness, and and so we should. We also remember, too, that he is a judge. He is a judge. Philippians 2.10 says this, Every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and will confess Jesus as Lord. At some point in life, every individual and every spiritual being will confess Jesus as Lord. The problem is, Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die, then the judgment. The confession that saves you has to be done in this lifetime. The confession you make about Him being Lord after death is too late. Arihav had this genuine concern for her family that they would know, be on the right side of God when, when judgment came. May that be said of us as an example in learning from her. And finally, finally, I love this lesson. If we turn to God now, we can leave a legacy of faith and obedience that can extend for many generations to come. You see, what's not told in Joshua 2 is the rest of her story. In verse chapter 6 and verse 25, it says this, that Rahab lived amongst the Israelites from that day forward. After the Jericho was taken, she lived amongst the Israelites from that day forward. Now, what's cool is we learn in Matthew chapter 1, her genealogy, and this is really neat. It says, that she married a man named Salmon. And he was the father of Boaz, and Boaz uh, um, um, was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. So again, you look at the lineage there. Here she is, this Canaanite wicked woman, saved under God's deliverance, comes out, lives in Israel, and look at the heritage she leaves. I mean, her grandson is Boaz. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. Her son is Boaz, who marries Ruth. We know the story of them in in Esther. They had a son named Nobad, who who had a son named Jesse, who gave birth to King David. And King David (laughs) was said to have a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart, the greatest king ever to live. was His great-great-grandmother was this harlot, this prostitute, this Canaanite wicked woman who was delivered under the merciful hand of God because she turned to him. You talk about passing down a faithful lineage, but it gets better. In Matthew 1.16, it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Rahab's lineage included the one who came to earth as a man to make salvation possible for all of mankind, Jesus Christ. She was, in fact, the first recorded Gentile convert in Israel. You know, that shows us that our past does not have to define us. There's nothing in our past life that God is not willing to forgive and even use for his glory and pass down to the next generations. And I speak to some of you in here because many of you come from generational sin after generational sin of patterns like sexual abuse, drunkenness, drug dealings, crime, uh, you name it. Spirits of bitterness, like whatever, anger. You've come from these maybe just one generation after another after another the buck stops here right now with you and your family for those of you who turn to the Lord. No matter if it's one generation or 50 generations, it stops right here for those of us who turn to the Lord. And we can create a legacy of, of, of families and lines that will be like Rahab and serving him. But here's the key. It's found in verse 12. She says, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with with basically me and spare our lives. We have to ask the Lord to deal kindly with us because of our past. And so it's an encouraging message, though, that knowing that we can pass down lineages from this day forward despite our sin, and God can use everything. Amen.